Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. If you grew up in Israel at the time of King David, there was one thing that dominated your life and that was the law, the old covenant that God had made with his people. Through Moses on Mount Sinai, that's not Moses, that's Charlton Heston, but he's playing Moses in in the movie, Uh, the law was given to the people of Israel. And the law covered virtually every aspect of your life. There were, of course, things like the Ten Commandments about not murdering or committing adultery or bearing false witness, but there were also laws about what you could and couldn't eat, laws about who you could and couldn't marry, laws about the length of your hair, the type of clothes that you're allowed to wear, laws about how to get rid of mildew in your house. There were laws covering every aspect of your life, and the law was a good thing. It clearly showed that God was interested in the lives of his people. We call that whole package the old covenant. A covenant is kind of like a contract. It explains the relationship between two parties. When you get a contract with a builder, it's really clear what you're required to do and what they are required to do and how you will be connected with them. And the same is true with this covenant that God made with his people. God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. But the problem with the covenant wasn't God or even the covenant itself. The problem was the people. And the people started to do what the letter of the law said rather than 
what the law was intended for. Or worse than that, they started doing the minimum that the law required. And things had deteriorated quite badly by the time that Jesus came. Beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has stood up on top of a mountain, just as Moses did with the Old Covenant, and Jesus is announcing the New Covenant that's now being ushered in. But it won't be like the Old Covenant. It won't be just a set of rules. It won't be written on stone tablets. God had promised, even back in the pages of the Old Testament, that he would make a new covenant with his people. Uh, it's classic passages in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Let me read, the, this is a long passage, but it's worth hearing what, Je- what, what God says about the new covenant that will be established. This is what he says through Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will anyone teach their neighbour or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Jesus has come to bring in that new covenant. Not a series of laws, but changed hearts and a personal relationship with God, where people will know God. A covenant that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus opened up the Sermon on the Mount last week. We were looking at that passage, and we saw Jesus describe who the blessed people are. Um, And the very next thing that he says after he's given that description, because I think it would have been quite a surprise to the people who were standing there and listening, He says the blessed people, and he hasn't mentioned anything about Abraham, he hasn't mentioned anything about Moses. But then comes the next surprising thing, or the thing that that indicates that they probably were surprised by what he says, because look at what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, pretty much a summary of the old covenant. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'm guessing most of those who were listening to the first 16 verses would have been a little shocked or at least surprised by what Jesus has said. But he wants to reassure them that he hasn't come to abolish what God has done in the past. He's come as the fulfilment of what God had promised in the past. He hasn't come to do away with the, old, with, with the, with the relationship with God. He's come to bring in this new covenant now he drops another bombshell in verse number 20. Again, I think the whole of the, ten, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is full of bombshells. But the next one comes in verse number 20 when he says, your righteousness is going to need to exceed that of the Pharisees. I'm sure that when people heard that, they would have said to themselves, well, you can't be serious. I mean, the Pharisees were the people who kind of had the monopoly on righteousness. If you ask people back in Jesus' day, who are the most righteous people in your community? the only answer that you would get to the question is the Pharisees. They were the guys who did the, le- the law right down to the very letter. How could anyone possibly outdo them? And it's true. The Pharisees were people who kept the letter of the law right down to the smallest detail. 
But the problem was they were so focused on keeping the letter of the law, they'd failed to do what the law required. And worse than that, they'd failed to live out their relationship with God. Take the Sabbath, for example. The law said that they were to keep the Sabbath, not to work or travel on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had imaginatively come up with a very clever way to be able to travel on the Sabbath. See, they put a little sub-law in underneath that law about not travelling on the Sabbath that said that it was actually okay to travel between your own property on the Sabbath because that's not really travel. I mean, you're just moving between your own properties on the Sabbath. So, if you've got to travel somewhere, the the law did allow that you could travel around about 500 metres on the Sabbath, but if you needed to travel further than that, if I needed to get up to Roselle, well, what I'd do is the day before, I would make the walk to Roselle and leave some pieces of my property along the way. Handkerchief, box of matches, coffee cup, something, just pop it in a bush somewhere so that on the Sabbath, well, I'm really only travelling between my own property, aren't I? I mean, I can travel that 500 metres, oh goodness me, there's a coffee cup of mine. And then I move on to the handkerchief, another 500 metres up the road. I could walk an incredible distance doing that. Jesus is not calling for letter of the law righteousness. He's not calling for superficial external righteousness. He's calling for changed hearts. It's an amazing section that we've got here because Jesus says that Uh, we need to be not legalists doing the letter of the law, but we need to be people who are doing what what God wants in our relationship with him. There are six statements, basically, that Jesus makes in this section, and your NIV Bible gives you the headings for those statements. And the statements basically have the same formula. It says, you have heard it said, or you have heard it said to the people long ago, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament, and then there's... uh, Then Jesus says, and these again would have been staggering words to the people who were listening. You have heard it said to the people long ago, quote from the Old Testament, and then Jesus says, but I say to you. Do you see the authority that Jesus is claiming for himself there? Can you imagine what the original listeners would have heard? I mean, here is Jesus uh, with the first two. He's actually quoting from the Ten Commandments, for goodness sake. And then he says, but... I say to you, I think people often make a bit of a mistake when they look through this passage because they think what Jesus is doing is taking Old Testament law and just cranking it up a notch, just making it a little bit more difficult, doing what the Pharisees did, just putting a few more sub-clauses in there. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. Jesus says that he has come to fulfil the law and the prophets. He's come to bring in in that new covenant. So let's have a look at some of them. Uh, Verse 21, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I think most people here this morning are probably going to make it through their lives without breaking that rule. Not the one about being angry, the one about murdering. My kids are now at an age where I'm pretty confident I can say, with a fair degree of certainty, I will probably not murder anyone in my lifetime. In fact, I'm not sure if there is anyone here who has murdered anyone in their lifetime. We could have a perfect record on that one. But I wonder how many of us would be able to say that about anger. I'm not sure that there would be anyone in the room who would be able to say that about anger. Jesus changes the focus from being the outward external thing to the inward thing. 
the thing to do with your heart. He's saying that the sort of hatred and that, that, that breeds anger is just as bad as murdering someone in God's eyes. We are not to be angry with others. Same thing happens, jump down to verse 27, same thing happens when it comes to committing adultery. Not only is it wrong to commit adultery, Jesus says, it's wrong to look at people lustfully in your heart. God is not simply concerned about our outward actions. He's concerned about what's going on in our hearts as well. Now, let me stress this again. Jesus isn't replacing one rule with another rule. That's not what he's come to do. This is not Ten Commandments 2.0. That's not what Jesus is trying to introduce. And did you notice, there's an interesting thing just with those first two that we've looked at, with anger and lust. It's actually impossible to make a law about those things, isn't it? I mean, who's going to know if you're angry with me right now? You might be sitting there angry at what I'm saying or the shirt that I'm wearing or my glasses or something. Who's going to know if you're angry? How can we police that? Well, it's not a law that you can police. And and who's going to know if you're thinking lustful thoughts about somebody else here? I suppose there's always that telltale little bit of dribble in the corner of your mouth. It could be a giveaway. But, But in the end, no one will know, will they? Except you and God. And that's the point that Jesus is making. Being part of this kingdom that Jesus brings in, being part of this new covenant, is not about doing the minimum that the law requires. It's not about having a righteousness that's superficial and skin deep. It's about having a righteousness that goes all the way to the heart. Pharisees were the legal experts of the day and they knew the the law inside out. Um, Jesus goes on to give four more examples of rules and laws that they had managed to twist and bend to suit their own devices, to show that they really were just a bunch of legalists, not people who were serious about a relationship with God. Uh, Have a look at a couple of them. There's divorce there that you see in verse number 32. Uh, Jump down to oaths. This is the one that I think is truly bizarre because it's a bit of a confusing passage as well. Back in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had turned taking oaths into a, a completely bizarre thing, a way of actually making a promise that you're definitely not going to keep, that you're actually lying when you do it. See, if when you made an oath back in Jesus' day, you were to swear by Jerusalem, then you weren't actually bound to keep that oath. But if you were to swear toward Jerusalem, get the subtle distinction there, well, that one you had to keep. So there was a way of actually making an oath that you knew in your mind you were never going to keep that oath. It was like the kind of adult version of, I had my fingers crossed. But look at what Jesus says, verse 37. All you need to say is simply, yes or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. He moves on to talk about an eye for an eye. Back in the Old Testament, when you look at that passage, it was intended as a limitation on punishment that could be given to someone. You weren't allowed to punish them more than you had received from them. But by Jesus' day, it had become a biblical justification for revenge. Not at all what God had intended. God said in Leviticus that they were to love their neighbours, but by Jesus' day, they'd twist that to say, well, you you love your neighbours, but you can hate your enemies. But do you see what Jesus says? 
Genuine righteousness goes all the way to the heart. If you look at this section of the Sermon on the Mount and you think that Jesus is just upgrading the laws, then you've missed the point. Jesus is ushering in a new covenant where God's people live faithfully in a relationship with him, where genuine righteousness is not about doing the minimum that the letter of the law requires. Jesus expects a righteousness that goes all the way to the heart and a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, the problem that Jesus is addressing here is a problem that we still see in churches today, isn't it? I think there are still people today who think that the Christian life can just be boiled down to a few little rules that I've got to keep. Maybe not the Ten Commandments, but but that wouldn't be a bad start. But just a couple of little rules, if I can get that right, well, surely God's got to be happy with me. The Pharisees, by Jesus' day, had actually boiled down the Old Testament to 613 commands or prohibitions. 245 laws, 365 prohibitions in the pages of the Old Testament. They'd gone through it and plucked them all out so that they could know that they were doing what God required. We've got to make sure that we don't have that same misunderstanding today, that there's a bunch of rules to obey and if we can do that, surely God's got to be happy with us. That's not how God intends his people to live. We are to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and with all our strength and we are to love our neighbours as ourselves. It's not outward observance to the letter of the law. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to have a faith that is only skin deep. He doesn't want his disciples to have a reputation for legalism. Christianity can't be boiled down to a few rules. It's not about simply obeying rules. It's about living faithfully in a relationship with God, about being a Christian and having that heartfelt relationship, not letter perfect legalism. Being a Christian is about knowing God personally and then living like you know God. 